0: Friends, good morning. Good morning. Let's uh, flip over to 1 Corinthians 15 and we will continue our little journey here through the epistle to the Corinthians. Remember, just by a uh, little review, last week we finished up in uh, chapter 14, and uh, ultimately, 12 through 14 is uh, Paul through the Holy Spirit explaining to us uh, spiritual giftings, how they're to be operated, uh, the point of them. Uh, and that's, that's it, really fits in, obviously, because there, with the whole letter, right? Because the whole gist of the letter is a church that's dysfunctional and ultimately selfish. And so Paul's writing to them saying, uh, working backwards, saying, hey, when you exercise your spiritual gifts, it's not so that you can feel better, it's to bless those around you, right? Uh, he illustrates that by talking about, he says, uh, he tells us, don't forget, forbid people from speaking in tongues. He says, I speak in tongues more than you all, and I wish you did speak in tongues. But then he says, if I'm in a a church gathering, the ecclesia, and I'm a public meeting, he says, I'd rather speak five words in a known tongue than 10,000 in unknown tongue. Uh, And so over throughout chapter 14, he's saying these are great gifts, but you use these to bless others. And then in chapter 13, it's kind of that famous love chapter where Paul, through the Holy Spirit, he's breaking down. This is what love is. This is what love isn't. And ultimately it boils down to this, that when we love someone, that agape or agapeo love, when we love them, it's not that we feel fuzzy about them. It's that we look at a person, regardless of what they've done, regardless of their past or their current state, and we say, I want the best for you. Whatever is the best for you. That's why when we love someone and when we're walking in love, we can be involved in conflict and all sorts of crazy things. And we we don't say what our flesh would want us to say. We don't lash out with that. When someone says something hurtful or assaultive to us, we look at them through the lens of Christ and we say, "Well, that really hurt. Didn't necessarily appreciate that. But my next word or facial expression or uh, uh, thought or, uh, that I want to express, it's going to be a thought or a word or an expression that that person, or I should say that will make it the easiest possible for that person to see Christ. That's what acting in love is that we're not raging on people, we're not assaulting people, we're not petty in our arguments or something like that, but that we're interacting, and all of our interactions are, how can I help this person see Jesus? They can act out, and they can assault, and they can do those things, and that's between them and Jesus. But as for me, I just want this person to know that I care about them and that God cares about them, and so I don't want to do something or respond in a way that's going to tarnish that. That's what love is. And so if we go back all the way through Corinth, which we won't, we won't have time, Uh, But if you go back through the whole letter, every individual thing that Paul is talking about is predicated on the idea of adhering to love versus adhering to selfishness. He says, hey, if you're going to sue someone, maybe you should just take the wrong because you love them. You don't necessarily want to sue them for something like that. He says, hey, when you have a potluck, don't get liquored at your potluck and then drunk and and uh, uh, go partake of the Lord's Supper. He says, that's that's rude to the people around you, right? He says, "That's a, it's a tarnish to the name of Jesus. He says, hey, when you have a potluck, don't just eat all the food that you brought. Make sure you share it with other people so you don't shame them, right? These are all, you would think like simple things. You would think that you're at this new church in Corinth, it's blowing up, it's super cool, it's the only one there, and you're just like, wow, this is amazing. And yet somebody has to write back and be like, hey, don't get drunk at the potlucks. But that's where we're at as Christians, right? He says, don't do that. Instead, share what you have, bless people around you, love them. And it goes all the way through. He even, he, he even talks about that with premarital sex. He says, look your body's not made for that it's not what you were made for and we talked about the physiology and the psychology everything happens with multiple partners but he says look love your neighbor don't put them through that don't do that so through the whole book that's what he's talking about or the letter I should say so as we kick off in chapter 15 it's it's really almost different from the entire rest of the letter and that it's a kind of a standalone singular chapter and he's going to talk about doctrine he's going to talk about the resurrection from the dead so we're going to try to get through all 58 verses this morning because it's all one subject. And we're not necessarily going to uh, cover all the nuance of every passage uh, because, I, well, that's, honestly, I don't want to spend four weeks in it. But so that's where we're at. So if you don't mind, let's flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll start reading. He says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verse 1, Now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So in this whole context that we've just laid out, a context of love, a context of correction, he says this first and foremost. Number one, I don't think it's uh, useless to draw attention again, he calls them brothers and sisters. and it's a, Your word might say brothers or brethren. It's the, the, the Koine Greek word for brothers and sisters. It literally means both genders. So he says, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. So he, he, he's not, he doesn't say children. He doesn't say ignoramuses. He says brothers and sisters. There's an encouragement there. And he says to them, I want you to remember the gospel I preached to you. Remember, Paul started the church there in Corinth. He planted it. Uh, He ends up going there and staying for 18 months, and he labors there for 18 months establishing this church. Uh, They they anoint uh, elders, and there's uh, someone who takes over for him, and he moves on in his journeys. But he's calling them right back. Remember what I said to you when I first got there. Remember what this church was built on, if you want to use modern vernacular. Remember the gospel, the good news that I shared with you. Then he says this, he says, I preach it to you. He says, you received it, and you have taken your stand. In other words, he's bringing them back to a place where it wasn't, um, they weren't unsure about it. It wasn't something that they were iffy on. He says, you received it. Remember, you received the gospel that I gave you. Now, we know that, you know, the the letter, which would have just been read out loud, right, in their gathering and other gatherings that circulated, he would go right on from there, and so that the context context would immediately be known. But remember, the context that he's this whole uh, beginning is is relegated to, or the the point of what it's pointing to is resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, and then the resurrection of believers. So he's drawing their attention to the fact you received, accepted, and stood on this gospel that I gave you, and that is that there is indeed a resurrection. Now he's going to go to verse 2. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Now I don't know about you, and I want to be careful here because I think if you're from the church, you know this is kind of a hobby horse of mine. But this is one of the primary verses that gets used to talk about how a person loses salvation. Because there's a big if in there. The interesting thing about Greek is there's actually a few different words for the word if, and typically in English, the word since or because is often, uh, uh, I should say in Greek, our word for because is often translated as if, which just means since. We talked about it a little bit last week. For example, if my wife says she's going to the store, and I say, hey, if you're going to the store, will you buy popcorn or something? I'm not calling into question her faithfulness of going to the store, right? I'm not saying, well, if you're actually going, will you give me some popcorn? What I'm saying is, since you're going to the store, will you purchase this item? So there's the, those kind of nuances come through in, in, in the, the coin of Greek also, right? So in this case, it's really important. He says, the gospel, by this gospel you are saved. Now, that I'm reading out of the NIV. Uh, if you have like an ESV, or I think it's the NASB also, it says being saved. This, by this gospel you are being, the NASB says are saved. The ESV says being saved. So it kind of goes the translations go a little bit back and forth. Now, here's the thing. I'm not trying to pull shenanigans to to put an eternal eternal security spin on this. But when you have to realize that when translators translate from, from Greek to English or Aramaic to English, as a lot of the gospels were were counseled and so forth, when they do that, they have to take a different language and then uh, this obviously is translating, <laughs> they have to take a different language and then try to bring all the nuance and meaning into, a different, into our language or German or whatever it is. So there's a very interesting thing that Greek has going for it. By this gospel, you are saved. It's actually the, the present passive indicative. So there you go. We'll move on. No, the, <laughs> we don't have that tense, really, in English. So the present passive indicative, there's a certain meaning to it, that if you're, if you're sitting in Corinth and someone stands up and reads this letter, you're going to understand that because you're a native Greek speaker. But it's difficult to translate it into English. That's why some say being saved and others say are saved. Some say have been saved because they're trying to capture exactly what that means. So if you take those three kind of adjectives about the tense, the present passive indicative, number one, the present tense means that something has started and there is no anticipation of its ending. That's what the Greek present tense is. This is currently happening and there's nothing that we can see that means it's going to end. That seems pretty important when we're talking about salvation, right? The second part of it is passive. Now, this is very interesting. It's a present passive, which means that that the that the uh, condition in which the subject is in, they are being acted upon, and it's not coming out of itself or themselves. In other words, this that when this when this says that when Paul says you are saved with the present passive, what he's saying is. Something is going on in you, it will continue to go on in you, and there is no anticipation of, it, of its ending. And then on top of that, the thing that's going on in you is a result of something that is acting upon you. Does that make sense? So in this case, for Paul is talking about the gospel. So the truth of the gospel is acting upon them and their lives, and they are presently now saved and being saved, and it's, there's no anticipation of its ending. So, now for the last idea, it's the indicative. And the indicative means it's a very, it literally means a real condition, and there's no contingent to it. So, this is important stuff, right? We're not making stuff up, this isn't smoke and mirrors. We're looking at what Greek scholars, way smarter than at least me, maybe not you, that know way more than we do. And they're saying these are what these tenses mean. So when we read this in the English today and Paul says, "You are the gospel, you are saved. By this gospel, you are saved. If you continue, he is not saying that there will somehow be a contingent in that salvation and you will lose it. Remember, what is our context here? Our context, forgive me, we haven't read it yet, but is cont- our context is eternal life. It is resurrection from the dead, right? So what Paul is saying is if you reject, this introduction is if you reject the fact that we will be resurrected from the dead, then you don't carry the same hope that we carry. You don't carry the Christian hope. And he's going to go on for the next uh, 56 verses and he's going to describe how pathetic we are if there actually is no resurrection from the dead, that we have a vain faith. Isn't that what he says? He says, by this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Contextually, he's not saying, well, if you have an issue with your faith, you lose your salvation and your original belief was vain. It was pointless. No, what he's saying is, if you don't cohere to the, the gospel that you received, which includes the resurrection from the dead, there's no point in our faith. None at all. So what is being said here? Every time that the word, it's, it's sozo, but every time that, that salvation is used in this form, the present uh, uh, passive indicative, it usually, it, well, almost always, it speaks of basically um, sanctification. And what we would say, like we've, we, we were, like we can turn to Ephesians 2, and it tells us that we have been saved by grace through faith. So the, the, the power... Uh, and it's, it's actually manifested in different ways, whether it's the word for energy or dunamis, the word for strength. So our, the power behind our salvation is the grace, right? You've been saved by grace. Faith was essentially the key that unlocked that door. So when we said, I trust you, God, God didn't just say, well, you've trusted me enough to get saved. What he said was, because you trusted me, my grace, my favor for you has saved you. This is a really important idea, right? Because if we start to say that our faith saves us, the more faith that we have, you go, well, that phrase is in the Bible. We can turn there if you want, because that's not what it means. But then when he says our faith saves us, there's a little bit of an error there because it's the grace that saves us, and the faith just opened the door. You also, if you want to take a stance like, no, no, you, salvation is losable, but you have to, come to you have to come to a conclusion. What is holding firmly? Have you loved every single person that you've ever met continually without ever ceasing because that's what your faith says? Have you never despised another human being, disesteemed them, dishonored them in your life because that's what faith says? Have you ever doubted what God wanted to do because that's not our faith? We, I think, I can only speak to myself and I mean that sincerely, to say that I hold firmly how do I even quantify that? There's a hundred times a day, a thousand times a day, I have to say, oh, Lord, that's not from you. That's from me. Lord, I didn't believe you for that. How many of us can point to a time in our lives where we go, man, I've had this attitude about people for like a decade. I've despised that person my whole life. So were you not hold fast that whole time? Were you actually not saved that whole time because you weren't holding fast to your faith? How much not holding fast do you have to do before your faith becomes vain and you you lose your salvation? At the end of the day, if you're going to say that you can lose your salvation, and if you're going to try to use verses, and I'm saying you, I'm not trying to be accusatory. It's just something I'm passionate about. So forgive me for that. If we as people are going to try to say that we maintain our salvation based on our faithfulness, that's just a joke to me. I mean, who among us would raise our hand and say, I've been faithful enough to go to heaven? I've been faithful enough. You know, God was really lucky lucky to have me on his team. You know what I'm saying? At the end of the day, if you say that, what you're saying is, I did enough. And that's what Romans 4 says. Anybody who points to works for salvation makes God a debtor. That's what he says in Romans 4. What you're saying is, I did enough, now you owe me something. And he says, he says of Abraham, it, it's a gift. Abraham earned nothing. Abraham wasn't even exactly that faithful, was he? Abraham didn't even, when, when it says that it was accounted to him for righteousness, it wasn't even based on faith that a Messiah would come. It was based on, hey, I'm going to bless you. And then I'm going to bless a bunch of people through you. And he's like, hey, I'm in. Sounds good. <laughs> right on. Because, frankly, I've been wandering around in tents, and so this sounds really great. And so what does he do? He sells, sells Sarah out twice to a harem because he doesn't want to die. Imagine if your husband did that. Here's the thing, Sarah, you're really hot. You know, Amalek over here is going to want you in his harem, and I don't want to die. So uh, tell him you're my half-sister, which was true, which is weird for us. And so She does. And she's praised for it in the New Testament. So twice she gets sold out into the harem. Can you imagine the eye contact as she's going out and all those donkeys or servants and riches are coming to Abraham? Like, sorry, baby. Right? Dude, Sarah must have been like, right? But twice God miracles the But the point is this Abraham wasn't faithful. Twice he goes into Egypt. Twice he sells out Sarah. Twice he has, Sarah says, hey, this isn't working out. Why don't you hook up with my servant and that'll be our baby, which was very normal in the day. Still weird to us, right? And he's, and Abraham, that strong man of faith, the promise of Isaac through Sarah, goes, okay, I'll do that. Yeah creates the weird triangle with with Ishmael, then when God says Ishmael's not going to be the inheritor, what does Abraham do? He responds with, no. He says, oh, that that Ishmael will live before you, right? He says, you're going to have another baby. It's going to be Isaac. And Abraham's response is, no, I don't want that. I want Ishmael to live before you. Let him have the the promise. See, salvation by grace through faith has always been, even in the law. Have you ever wondered? This has been baffling me, actually, for a few months now. Have you ever wondered? So the the penalty, we talked about this a few weeks ago, because I'm still waiting for an explanation because I don't, I don't get it. So Joseph is commented to be a lover of the law. Joseph, Mary's husband, right? When Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, what's the, what's the penalty for premarital sex? Death. Death. Yeah. Death is. So when Joseph, as a lover of the law, the Levitical law, finds out that Mary is pregnant, the commentary of the Gospels is he was a righteous man and he sought to put her away quietly. So Joseph ignored the penalty of the law for premarital sex because he didn't believe. I mean, would any of us believe, like, it's cool, hon. It's from the Holy Spirit. Be Like, oh, <laughs> I want to believe you. But, but Joseph goes to put her away quietly. And he's called a righteous man for it. So he ignores the penalty prescribed by the law. And the New Testament commentary is that he's a righteous man for having mercy. Isn't that wild? It trips me out. There's also, you can give a certificate of divorce to to a spouse, right, for impurity, which would be sexual. But what's the penalty for sexual impurity in a marriage? Death. It's wild stuff, isn't it? So it's always been grace by faith. It always has. It's never been works. It's always been the fact that God loves human beings and that he desires fellowship with them so much. So when we come to verses like this, we can't just take it out of context and be like, well, this means you lose your salvation because clearly you have to hold fast. We have to think a lot about that before we say something like that because this isn't talking about that. This is saying if you don't stick to the idea that you're resurrected from the dead, then you literally have vain faith. You really have nothing to be believing in it's a pointless idea. That's all it's saying here. So he's going to go on in verse three. He says, "For what I have received, I passed on to you as of first importance: that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures; that He was buried; that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures; and He appeared to Cephas, and after then, uh, then to the twelve. And after that, He appeared more than five hundred. Uh, excuse me. And after that, He appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living." though some have fallen asleep then he appears to James then to the apostles and last of all appeared to me also as to one abnormally born so what's going to happen now and this is the first portion of it paul's going to lay out different arguments so this one this particular argument uh, or discussion point however you'd like to label it is based on witnesses so in this first point he's saying look what I was shown, where was he shown that? Well, at the very least, he was shown at, on the don, or when, not donkey, when he's knocked over, right? As he's on his way to persecute the church. We know that he spent personal time with Jesus appearing to him in the desert in Arabia before he goes to Jerusalem. So he's saying that he has this knowledge that he received from Jesus. He doesn't note it here, but that's where he received it from. He received this knowledge. He says, that's what I gave it to you. And he says, I gave it to you of first importance. He says it was when I gave it to you, and it still is the most important thing I ever told you. It was the gospel, and then he goes on to say what, and he sum, summarizes what that was: that he, that he died and he raised from the dead. Right? That he died, he was buried, he raised from the dead, and then in verse four, and that he was—I'm uh, uh, sorry—and that uh, 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 lots of stuttering—he um, was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So the second part that he was real to him was where. The scriptures. What scriptures? Not the New Testament, right? It hasn't been written yet. It definitely hasn't been collected yet. This letter is from 56 AD. There's maybe five other letters that we have that have been written yet. So he's not talking about the Gospels. They haven't been written yet. He's not talking about anything like that. He's talking about the Old Testament, right? He's talking about the, the witnesses And the the, the prophecies of the Old Testament, whether it be Genesis 3 or Isaiah 9 or Isaiah 53 or Habakkuk or wherever you want to turn. He's saying, so first he says the first is is the gospel. He says it was given to him and he gave it to them. Then he said that there's appearances that have occurred. So it's all witnesses. The scriptures witness to it. He witnesses to it. Then he says Cephas witnesses to it. The 12 witness to it. And then you have 500 brothers and sisters Who all see Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. So that's that's important stuff, right? And then he goes on to say, and most of those people are still alive. You can go talk to them if you want. I mean, think about it. So you figure there's in this room probably 130, 140 people here, right? If I said to you when you leave, I need you to go tell everybody you know that I levitated. Right? It's going to be really good for the faith. People are going to like, want to come and hear the word. It's going to be amazing. I just need you to go do that. Do you think maybe there'd be one of you that would walk out of here and be like, that was lame? <laughs> maybe two? Maybe more? Imagine if you had 500 people and you're like, what we're going to do is, we're going to pretend we saw Jesus. All right? Pinky swear on that one. Here we go. Somebody would walk out of that room and be like, there was no Jesus? He wasn't there. This is a joke. And this is at a time, see, this is at a time where confessing Christ, it costs you your family if you're Jewish, and probably if you're Greek too. If, they, if you have a, a very polytheistic family and they're all about honoring them, some, uh, you know, Zeus or whatever, we fill in said Greek or Roman God, they kind of like merge a little bit. You, you lose your family, you lose your life, you lose your livelihood. It's not like here, where if you were to come out and be like walk out of your door and be like, "I love Jesus," there'd be like some people be like, oh, do you need help? Like, what's wrong with you?" Right? You lo- literally lose everything. So to be one of these 500 to walk out a door and go, "No, no, no, the disciples didn't steal the body. I saw the risen Jesus." It costs you everything to do that. And so Paul's just making the point: these people, these 500 people, have lost everything, and you can go talk to them. You can ask them. Not to mention the fact that if you were to go through and look at the apostles after Judas, all 12 of them, including Paul, Paul has honestly one of the easiest martyrdoms that there was. He got beheaded by Nero. That's easy street. You have Peter who's crucified upside down. You have Thomas who's uh, set on a spike, anus first. You have James who gets kicked off the, the side of the temple. And all those guys all had opportunity to recant. Peter's wife was crucified with him. They all could have recanted. They all could have said, no, never mind, never mind. We didn't actually see him risen from the dead. we have just been gravy training this for money. But they all died. So Paul's just saying, look, the witnesses are real, man. The events are real. You can ask anyone else that's been a part of it. Then he's going to go on to some uh, kind of a parenthetical idea about himself and his apostleship. If somebody was uh, curious about that, he says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles and do do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they... This is what we preach, and this is what you believed. So he gives a little bit of background upon his own apostleship, which we won't go into. But he says, look, you have to understand whether it's I say it or whether it's one of the other 11 says it, or 12 if you count Matthias, he says, we're all saying the same thing. All of us are saying that Christ was raised from the dead. Verse 12, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Just what he said above, right? More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he has raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for the life we have, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now he's going to lay out a little bit of, of logic. he's going to say, look, if you say he goes how can you if we're saying if all of us right because this follows right on the heels of verse 11, if all the apostles in him are saying that Christ raised from the dead, he says, how can you guys say that he didn't raise from the dead? And part of that is because they were there, right? Not necessarily Paul. He says as one born abnormally, the idea is there is one born out of time. Um, he, wasn't, he was born like, as if he was an apostle, but born at the wrong time kind of thing. So he says, so he's saying, look, if, if, we're all, if we all have this testimony... Then how can you say that Christ didn't raise from the dead? We were there. They were there at the very least. He saw the risen Christ. And then he goes on to say, and if you go further, then what you're saying is we're liars. All the apostles are liars because we have all said that Christ raised from the dead. Those 500 people are liars. They said that Christ raised from the dead. So now after the witnesses, he's going into other evidence of who's giving this testimony. Then he has, with logic, more than that, we are then to be found, oh, I'm sorry, uh, next verse, he goes, uh, for if the dead, verse 16, are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. He says, if you say that Christ did not raise from the dead, then that, that tears down the entire thing, because that means that you haven't been forgiven of your sins. Christ's resurrection was a testimony to the fact that death could not hold him, Right? Why could death not hold him? Because he himself was without sin. So because he was without sin, there was no justice that could hold him in death. So he was judged for our sins, right? He died for our sins. And you think of the, uh, the, the metaphors that uh, are in the, the scriptures, that he took our sin, the, the, I should say the list of ordinances written against us, and he nailed it to his cross. He became sin that he actually embodied that sin, right? He bore it in his body is another way the Bible puts it. Over and over again, you have all this allegory to explain that somehow the Lord Jesus Christ, as God and man, took the sin of humanity, internalized it, owned it for himself. And that when he was slain at Calvary, that God looked upon him in our stead, literally as if he had done those things and he was judged for them. Even though he did not do that, he took all of the wrath of God for us at Calvary. And because he was was a righteous man, he was raised from the dead by the power of God. So if you say that he was not raised from the dead, what you've got is a martyr, a good guy, a good teacher. But he wasn't those things alone, he was the Lord of the universe. So Paul is just making these statements. He says, if you try to take this away, what you say you believe is completely eroded. It's not actually what you believe. And it becomes in vain. And then he makes a statement. If, we, if we're following Jesus, if our hope or literally expectation, right, what hope means, if our expectation is only in Jesus for this life, in other words, if, there's, if we get annihilated, if the soul is annihilated after death, if you're following Jesus, you should be the most pitied person in the world. In other words, people should look at you and feel sorry for you. They should look at you and be like, oh, that poor person. You believe that. Good luck with that. So he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, we have a pitiful, a vain, and a pointless faith. Verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the, uh, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So this is a, a, something It's like a very brief statement of essentially like Romans chapter 5. It's just, the, it's just a doctorate, uh, doctorate of uh, uh, federal headship. So you can impress your friends at ice cream socials or whatever. But it's just, it's just the idea that God condemned every human being in Adam right? Since human beings were both seminally and spiritually, as it were, in Adam, that when Adam sinned as a favor to humanity, God looked at all people and said, you're fallen in Adam. Now, we know that that played out, right? Because all of us are fallen. Adam and Eve created more sinners, and they created sinners and more sinners and sinners and so on. So he says that death came through Adam, right? And so since death came through Adam, likewise, resurrection also came through one man, through Christ. So just as all died, and this is explained significantly uh, in more detail in Romans 5, since all died in Adam and all were condemned in Adam, it is through the life of Christ that everybody, every person is able to have eternal life, is able to have resurrected life. That's what he's saying. He also makes the point, and he makes the allusion to and points to that Christ was the first fruits, again on this idea of the need for the resurrection. He's saying Christ was the first person to be resurrected. And you go, well, wait a minute. What about Lazarus? What about the widow's son? And they were resurrected to die again, right? They didn't receive new bodies. It wasn't like Lazarus came out of the grave with a body that's uncorrupted. He came out with the same old body that he had, just, I guess, an upgrade because it was, you know, he would have been rotten after four days. So some things changed, obviously, or else, you know, he was the first zombie. Bad joke. Anyway, so that's what happened. Those guys died again. They're not among us. So Christ was the first person to ever be raised from the dead, receive a body that was incorruptible. Before, Hebrews told us he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He himself was not sinful, but he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He had a fallen body in this sense. He experienced what it was to have human flesh, right? He had a respiratory system. He had a pulmonary system. He was bodily slain and he was bodily resurrected. These are important ideas, so Paul's just saying that Christ is the first fruit so the first fruits if you're not if you don't recall that that stretches all the way back to the law it stretches all the way back to the, so there was like a feast there were sacrifices and things like that so the first fruits was the first time it was on a specific day that you had um It was the first part of your harvest. So if you had a bunch of barley or wheat or whatever you're growing, when it first came, the the first stuff that you planted came to be uh, uh, ripe, and you could pick it. That was the first fruits. And then you would take some of that, and you would have just a big feast, like in your uh, uh, in your village. Um, If you were near, if, if if it's after they take the Promised Land, and you were near Jerusalem, it wasn't required. But if you were close enough, you could go to Jerusalem. You'd give some to the priests. They would wave it before the Lord. Uh, and it was an offering before the Lord of the first fruits. So, what Paul's saying here, he's just making another metaphor to the law. And he's saying, look, Christ was that first fruits. He was the, the first one to, to be ripe and to come out of resurrection. He's the first one that we celebrate. But the point is, there will be many more, that the harvest is coming after the first fruits. Verse 23, he says, But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, and after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has now put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under, his, under him, it is clear that he does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself, Will be made subject to Him who put everything under Him, so that God may be all in all. We don't have time because we want to finish the chapter today. There's a lot to be said there, but the point is this: Paul talking about how, uh, chronologically and essentially, uh, well, chronologically how events will play out, and and this is obviously one of the most debated topics, right? Eschatology or end time study. It's one of the most debated topics uh, for ever, I guess. But he says there's some things that we can glean from this. Number one, he says that Christ is the first fruits, but then each person in Christ, when he comes, will also change. right? So, so when Christ comes. Now, is he returning to the second coming of Christ? Because you kind of have two different instances described in the Bible. One, one instance, it says that he comes in a thief in the night. Nobody knows that he's coming. He, he pops in. And then it says that we shall meet him in the air. And this is disputed, and that's fine. I mean, at the end of the day, it is what it is. But he says that ultimately, the, the, the word that most people use is rapture. And so one of the um, criticisms of that is that rapture never appears in the Greek. Uh, that's true. But in the Latin, raptus does. And it's, it's the word for when it says taken away or snatched away. So the, the Christ will come. Nobody knows he came. Nobody knows that he's, he's there on the earth. It says he'll come in the clouds, and then he's a thief in the night. And then it says, We shall meet him in the air. So there seems to be this event where the world doesn't see it. It's not widely publicized, it's not CNN. It just, boom, there's just a billion people gone, or however many it might be. And in th- that time, and he's going to explain this a little more, we will receive our new bodies. Bodies that aren't made for this world, bodies that are made for heaven. Then there's a second event when he comes. And then he will come again, and it says that he rolls the scroll back. I watched too much TV as a kid, so I was imagining that in my mind, like, this, like you know, the sky, the sky, or should I say the sky rolls back as a scroll. Like, he's, like, peeking in, like, I don't know. It's probably not like that. I don't think he's gigantic. But, you know, so but he'll, he'll pull the, the, the sky back. That will be exciting. And then he'll descend right onto the Mount of Olives. And then that, there'll be this huge earthquake. It'll crack. And then, basically, it's go time from there. And you have some battles and some other things that happen. And, you know, we can debate which battles win. And when's the sheep of the goats? and it. Yeah, I don't know. Nah, it is when it is. You know, when we see it, we'll be like, oh, I bet that's the sheep and the goats. All right, cool. <laughs> Glad I'm not there. But uh, so he's saying that there'll be this judgment and then the end will come. And so part of the ending and part of the resurrection life is that God will subject everything to Christ. So in other books, we're told that we don't see everything subject to him right now, right? I mean, would you look out on the world and say, this world is subject to Christ? No. I probably wouldn't even say that about my own life sometimes, much less try to claim that this whole world is subject to Christ. But one day it will be. One day it says he'll reign with an iron fist, that there'll be immediate justice, swift justice, all these different things about that. Then after that, he will, uh, well, then the earth is remade, yada, yada. Good thing I said we're not getting into this. And so then, <laughs> you know me, I can't do it. So, so he, he remakes the, the, the heavens and the earth, and you know, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Might have skipped a few things there. But the point is that at that point, Christ is eternally subject to the Father. Even though he himself is God, right? We know that. Philippians 2 clearly says it. Multiple times he equates himself to God. Uh, you know, uh, when he says, before Abraham was, I am. And then the Pharisees are like, Whoa, we're killing you. Why? Because he said, no, I'm God. Yeah. Right? So multiple times he shows himself as God. So he's not, it's interesting to note that in the Godhead, there's a subjectiveness, that, that even though Christ is God himself and you have God the Father, that Christ is now subject to the Father and the Father gives everything to the Son. Right? So he's describing what resurrection like, is like for Jesus and what we will experience with Jesus. So then he says there in verse 29, if now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? So there you go. That's why we baptize for the dead. Wait, we do? This is weird. Right? This is probably the weirdest verse in the Bible. Paul's like laying out all this evidence, like, yeah, okay, I can get behind that. Yep, yep. Reign forever. Yep, yep, yep. And that's why we baptize for the dead. Okay. we don't do that it's interesting because no church father or no writer it doesn't matter if you want to read Tertullian if you want to read any, any of those guys none of them ever mention in context of Christianity baptizing for the dead it's never mentioned anywhere else in the Bible there's no other verse there's no Old Testament idea there's no New Testament idea where Peter says alright guys welcome to Jerusalem church has started let's start baptizing for the dead so baptism for the dead is kind of the idea that I'm walking with my deity, whoever that might be, I'm, I, have, I have a good standing with my deity, and my relative died, and I don't think they did. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the temple, I'm going to offer some meat, offer some gold, whatever it might be, and then I'm going to get baptized by their priestess or priest, and that, that, that the God, that I'm the deity that I'm concerned about, will then look at my act of faithfulness and relieve this other person, my dead loved one, right? So it's it's kind of a knockoff of the gospel. It's kind of interesting. But so the question is, what does this mean? And here's the deal. No one knows. Just, I mean, you have guys and gals that have studied for 60 years that dig all this history up. And the truth of the matter is nobody actually knows. There's about like 200 explanations for this. So I will give you an opinion that you can throw in the trash, and that is this, about 20 miles like northwest from here, there was a pagan tribe. And when I say tribe, it's not super tribalism because it is Corinth, it's an established urban area, but it's kind of an outskirts, kind of a farm community, and there's a pagan a community there, and they baptized for the dead. So it could be, and I, if somebody wants to you know, debate it, like, I already give up, you win. I don't, I don't know. But it could be that really what's being said here is Paul's saying, look, the apostles said this, the witnesses said this, I said this, right? Here's all these different evidences. Here's what it means logically if Christ is not raised from the dead. And it seems to be that Paul's saying even the pagans believe in a resurrection from the dead. And and so they're baptizing for this purpose. So it just seems to be another evidence. Now, if someone says, well, I don't think that's what it means. Hey, honestly, God bless you in that, Other than that, I have no idea because he's definitely not validating baptizing for the dead. Right. Can we agree on that? Because there is no there is one substitutionary act and that is Christ. All right. And we don't have another substitutionary act that we do to try to redeem another. We, We can't do it. So we know he's not advocating for that. And also because Justice, Martyr, all these guys, none of them came along and said, oh yeah, and then we did this too, and it really worked out great. It's just not in history anywhere. So moving along from there, now that we've solved that problem, <laughs> <laughs> some of these things are kind of wild. So he says in verse 30, and as for us, and this is I think another reason why, um, why he could be talking about some people that aren't believers, because in verse 29 he says, why will those? And then in verse thirty, he says, "And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour?" So he says, "If those people are baptizing for the dead, if there's no resurrection, why do we put ourselves in danger every hour? I face death every day. Yes, I just as surely, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord, if I if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained?" If the dead are not raised. So he says, if those guys over there, if, if they're baptizing for the dead, if they know that there's a resurrection, th- then you know, what are we doing here? And then he says in verse 30, he says, and if there's no resur- resurrection from the dead, why am I living the life I am? Why do I fight beasts in Ephesus? Probably not real, like he was out in Ephesus, like duking it out with lions, uh, but morally the idea of we know that there was a lot of, if you remember the riot and all those things that happened in Ephesus. But he's, he's almost torn apart. The, the, the Roman guards have to come down and get him. So it's more than likely he's actually referencing this idea, like, why am I living the life that I am constantly in, in danger of death when I could just say there is no resurrection and I wouldn't have to live that life? I could, just, I could just, you know, if this is just a hope that I have for this earth, then there's no point in me living the life that I have. And then he's going to go on. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. He says, if there's really no resurrection, if really all we have to look forward to is the annihilation of the soul, well, let's party. Let's do whatever we want to do. There's no moral implication. I can do whatever I want to do. Hurting people doesn't matter. Sinning doesn't matter. Because if there's no resurrection from the dead, if there's no life after, if there's no judgment, if I really have just, uh, in this case, typically 40 years, some people live to be older, not many, um, if I have 40, 50 years on this earth, well, then why would I want to spend it to give honor to something that's not real? Why would I do that? That's what he's saying. So he goes on from there, and uh, we're going we're gonna, to uh, switch gears again here. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With, that, with what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow uh, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So now he's going to ask a rhetorical question. And this is kind of normal for Paul, Paul's writings, right? He, he presents an argument and then he answers it, or presents a question and he answers it. These are not, uh, he's obviously not asking in, in a vein of like a legitimate question. In other words, he's not saying like somebody could have this question and here's a good answer to it uh, because it's a, it's a genuine question. Because he answers it with, you're a fool. <laughs> And a fool is typically somebody who knows better, right? So this question that he presents, is this somebody who, have you you ever done this in an argument? We won't won't pretend other people do it. We'll just talk about ourselves. Where you know you're wrong, but you'll present evidence or you'll fight an argument that you know you're wrong in. Anybody ever done that before? Really? No one? Okay. You guys are more righteous than I. We do that as humans, right? Because we're like, I am not going out this way. You will not best me. I will prove my point. We have a term for it. It's called devil's advocate. It's right in the name. It's just like, but we do it. So he's, that's what he's doing. He's just asking a question, but it's not a genuine question. Like somebody comes like, oh, oh, you're just going to get a new body? Yeah, yeah that's actually exactly what's going to happen. So he says, to, his first response is, you're being foolish. You're being foolish to even, to, to say out loud, oh, could you actually have another body? How could this actually happen? So he goes on and he explains that for us. And he says, When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and each kind of seed he gives its own body. So his first metaphor is this his first picture is this. When you go to plant something in your garden, what you plant is not what you get, right? You put a seed in the ground, and it's the warmth and the moisture in the soil that causes the seed to break open, and then the immediate nutrients are what cause the plant to grow. The plant does not have the same body as the seed, right? The seed has one form. The plant has a completely different form. And every seed and every plant have different bodies, right? So he's just saying, look, you have that much variation in just nature and seeds alone. Then he goes on, and he says, not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh; animals have another; birds another; and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly body is of one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, and the moon another kind of uh, another, and the stars another. And the stars differs from that. uh, Excuse me. And star differs from star in splendor what he is not saying, and, and uh, forgive me for this, but I've heard many in the past say something like, well, see, this is, this is showing that people that are good Christians, that they get fancy bodies, and people that are bad Christians, well, they get the stars. So, like, the, the good people get the sun, and, you know, if you're decent, you get a moon, and then if you're eh, eh, glad you made it, you get a star. It's, it's not, that's not the point here. The star is simply the point that, uh, the, the, the metaphor is simply a point to this, that there's a ton of different bodies out there right, the sun is clothed one way, the moon is clothed another way, that there's just tons of different bodies out there. So it's not hard to see, because he's answering his original question, right? It's not hard to see that we could have one body and then be transported, or whatever language you'd like to use, that we could receive and take home in another body. Like, that's not weird, that's not inconceivable, that there's that kind of clothing, if you will, all around us. Now, is there reward for faithfulness? Yes, but that's not what this is talking about. 42, so it will be in the, with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, see this is generic for all. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in, uh, in, dis, in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in a weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised in a spiritual body. So now he's taking all those metaphors and showing, look, it can all transfer. It can go from physical to heavenly. The cool thing is, this encouraged me, perhaps it'll encourage you, that word perishable, it's also corruptible. So one of the points that he's making is that our bodies, the new bodies that we'll get, are incorruptible. They cannot be corrupted. That's awesome. They cannot be corrupted. They are eternal in nature. There's nothing that could happen to them or someplace we could go or that makes them to be able to begin to die again. There's, there's nothing that can... subtract from them, that they're going to be. So we sow a perishable, corrupted body, right? We die because the the gamma rays from the sun, radiation from the sun, right? It radiates us and and it it mutates our cells. So if you drink dirty water, you know, whatever it is, all these things are constantly assaulting the body, right? That's why we age. And our body reaches a point where we cannot reproduce new cells as fast as the, the cells corrupt from those things that are around us. And that's where you get things like diseases and cancers and so forth that begin to have, and you have organ failure, all these different things. Because it's a corrupted body in a corrupted world. But this new body that we'll receive is incorruptible. Nothing can damage it. Nothing can make it less than, as it were. So he goes on from there, and he says this. Um, we're in a natural body, but we're raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. So now he talks about origin. and So the origin of our original bodies is from clay. It's from the dust of the earth. So dust of the earth originated bodies are made for the earth, right? So we see, we hear, we have all these things that we do, all the way our processes and all the, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, and all these different things that are going on in our body all the time, right? Because it's made for this earth. That's what it was made for, from the earth for the earth. He says, but this new one that we're going to get, this is actually from some sort of spiritual substance. And that's, that's kind of hard to quantify because you're, what is heaven made of, right? If heaven is, it's not far from us, right? It's, God's not far from us. It's, it's, more, it's not that it, he's somewhere out there beyond the cosmos. It's more that he's next to us but out of time, right? We live in time and in, in a kind of this dimension, if you will, but he's not far from this dimension. It's like a thin membrane or something, 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 whatever it might be, that separates eternity from us. Is, it's not distance. It's not, it's not a timeline. It's, it's not something like that, right? It's just got to be he's there. And so these bodies that we have, or, the, 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 or I should say that we will receive, they're made of or from whatever substance the spiritual is. And it's interesting because Pretty much anywhere in the Bible you see the word spirit or spiritual, it's pneuma, it's breath, it's wind. So these new bodies are made from and built for particles of heaven. And so our consciousness will shed this body and receive a new body. Now, one of the things that, and I don't want to get too weird, but I will. One of the things that I think is super cool, right? So we all have broken thinking about things, right? In other words, like, we all have ways that we think, ways that we process, um, habitual thought patterns, right? And, and some of those, uh, and I've mentioned this before, there's, there's a, just a fantastic uh, YouTube channel, uh, I think it's Throyava is her name. She's, just, she's a gal that just goes around San Diego and interviews people, asks them really hard questions. And, I mean, who knows how she edits it, so you have to give it for that, but she, she seems pretty genuine. But everybody that she interviews, it's just wild, because everybody has something from when they're like five or six years old, and it's dictated their lives. In the sense that, like, somebody told them they were stupid. Somebody, you know, a parent basically, you know, a lot of them, because one of the things she always asks is, what's the hardest thing anybody's ever said to you? And a lot of them, as a parent said, I wish you were never born. Or a lot of them, as a parent said, you were stupid, Right? So as human beings, our interactions with each other, as much as we may not want it to be, they're tainted from from ourselves and from others, right? We taint others with our words and they taint us. And so that's all in the brain. It's literally monitorable. You can, you can watch neuroplasticity change. You can watch thought processes. You can watch all that with the technology we have today. When someone says something to someone else, you can watch where it lights up in the brain. It's all organic in that sense. So we have, this, we have an eternal soul that is, is pneuma, right? It's eternal. It's of eternal origin. And somehow that eternal soul that was created by God is linked to an organic body that's purely organic and it's it's hormones it's it's uh, synapses firing right you know why you feel happy when you eat something that tastes good because your brain releases dopamine it's not some super spiritual event it's literally your brain going I like this and so the rest of you goes I like this right it's 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 like almost inconceivable. I don't I don't have any understanding how it works. But so all that weirdness that's in our brains, all the things that we think of, all the things that we that we have aversions to. Well, not all, but many of the things we're aversions to. All the ways we fail because we've been told we're going to fail. All the ways that we, all those things that the, the hangups we have, the weirdnesses that we have, the, the the distrust that we have for people and human beings. That's not in the soul. It's in the mind. And so this mind, which is really important right now, it's not fit for heaven. It's corrupted. It's been broken by me and it's been broken by others. And so when we get to heaven and we get this pneumatic, for lack of a better term, this spiritual body, all that brokenness will be gone. All those hindrances, all those fears, all the ways we, we think about things. We won't have those anymore. We'll be truly free to just be who we are in Christ, to be loved and to love. So this this idea of resurrection, it's not just kind of like this Easter thing where we're like, yay, let's get some flowers. It's literally the hope of our lives that one day we will be completely changed, never to look back with regret, never to be held back by our thoughts, and praise God never to hold someone else back with our words. This is, that's what we're talking about. That's, what, that's what's on the table here. It's incredible. So he goes on there and he says, verse 48, As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those of the heavens. Speaking of the body. And just as we have uh, borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. Probably something great to talk about if we have more time. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, again, incorruptible, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. A lot to be said. So he says here real quick, because it's already noon, He says here, he speaks of the rapture that will be changed. The important thing about the rapture is this. We will all be changed. We will all be changed. Every one of us. It doesn't say that the good people, the good Christians get changed. The the extra faithful ones get changed. And then the naughty ones, well, they don't get changed. We will all be changed. Who is he writing to? A radically selfish, dysfunctional, suing, sexting it up, drunken it up in church. Church. Right? That's who he's writing to. He's not writing to the cream of the crop Christians, as it were, because they don't exist, but in our minds they do somehow. That's who he's writing to. We will all be changed. And then he goes on for that, and it's very poetic in the Greek, it's poetry, and he's saying, look, the perishable, the corrupted has to put on the incorrupted. You know, I don't want to spend too much time here. This is the remember, this is the first Corinthians 3 judgment. The corruptible has to put on the incorruptible. In other words, he says that our works are like wood, hay, stubble, right? Our hearts, works, our thoughts. They're wood, hay, stubble, or they're precious stones, gold and silver. And he says that every person will pass through this fire, the eye of Christ will be reviewed by Christ. And he says, if you've built with wood, hay, and stubble, if your whole life has built with wood, hay, stubble, he says, he himself shall be saved though as by fire, because this is it. Everything I built into my life, every time I was selfish and I held on to it and it became part of my mind and my soul, every time that I was angry and I held on to it and it became my identity, every time I was victimized and I held on to it and it became my identity, all these things, instead of my identity being in Christ, it's it's corruptible and it's perishing. And so when this body is put off, all that goes with it. But the key is this, I don't have to have those things now. I don't have to hold on to anger or pride or greed. I can let go of it. I can repent. And then that, actually in my own body now, my soul begins to adapt to and become the imperishable. And so the body ultimately just becomes a a venue for my already imperishable soul. But how much of my soul will be imperishable on this side of eternity and the fire, and how much of it will become imperishable on the other side of the fire? That's really what it comes down to in this life. That's the questions we're answering. How much will I yield to Christ and how much will I insist on for myself to have it burnt away? And it's kind of a scary prospect, but also comforting. But it's noteworthy, he says this. He says, once all these things happen, the rapture, Once all that's when death has been swallowed up in victory. That's when the saying comes true. And I don't know if there's a big theological point here other than this. Death still has victory right now in this world. It's a broken world with broken bodies and broken people, and death reigns. But you and I, we don't fear death. We're not scared of death. Maybe how we're going to die, but we're not scared of death, right? But one day the saying will be fulfilled, where everybody can say death has no sting anymore. But it's not going to be until this day. And so it's not to discourage us or something like that, but to encourage us. We don't have to be discouraged by death right now. We look at it, we say it's horrible, it sucks, it hurts, it tears at our hearts, but it's normal here. But one day it won't be normal anymore. It'll be abnormal. It'll be, it'll be gone, right? No more death, no more suffering, no more pain, <laughs> The verse 36 and 37, we're not going to cover because it's a major theological point. The sting of death is sin, and the power of death is the law. Right? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The law only brings death. It doesn't matter what epistle you turn to. Galatians, Ephesians, it does not matter what epistle you turn to. The law is never heralded as a source of life. Never. It's only death and wrath. In fact, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 2 and 3, he calls it the ministry of condemnation. So it's important. So that's why he follows up by saying, thanks be to God, because God delivered us from the wrath of the law. I'm not saying the law law is perfect, but it was not there to give life, and it never could. Verse 58, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, and let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So he sums it up with a really simple statement, right? And it's so apropos. Because there's a resurrection from the dead, because we have hope after this life, because we'll have a body that's like Christ, because we'll be able to evidently remember and consider and shout praise for what God did in our earthly lives. He says because of that, always make sure you're giving yourself to the work of the Lord. Whatever that is for you. What has God called you to do? Well, there's things we don't have to pray about, right? He's called us to love. He's called us to care. He's called us to give of our lives to one another. He's called us to hospitality. He's called us to be thankful. He's called us to, to, to take care of the widow and the fatherless. Right? So we have some things that's like, oh, I don't have to pray today. Should I go out and, and represent Christ? I don't have to pray about that. Now, there's other things that we may go, oh, should I go to Zimbabwe? Or should I go to wherever? right? Even that ooh, hot take, I don't think it really matters. I think, you can just, I think you can go anywhere. So, I don't know, be free. Like I think sometimes we, we want to, oh, is it Zimbabwe? Or is it what? You know what? If you go somewhere and you have the word of God in your heart, it doesn't matter where you go. There's going to be fruit. If you feel you're called to Zimbabwe, go to Zimbabwe. If you feel you're called to your hometown, go to your hometown. There's nothing better about Zimbabwe than here. There's nothing better here than Zimbabwe. There's dying people everywhere. Maybe that's a word for someone today. Be at peace. Go where you want to go. Take the job you want to take. Just honor Christ because you're going to bear fruit wherever you go. You don't have to get bound up about it. You don't have to be like, oh, God's going to hate me because I took that job. He's really not. He's really not. And if you're not supposed to get the job that you, that you have, guess what? He'll take it away or he'll give you another one. He's really incredible. So just be free to serve the Lord wherever you want to serve the Lord. It's going to be all right. But he says, just don't give up on serving the Lord because we're going to be resurrected and it has great value in eternity. Value to you and value to others. The fact that by the grace of God, there will be people in heaven that said, yeah, I went over to that person's house once and they gave me some tea and it changed my life because they shared a verse with me or just because they loved me. I'd never experienced that before. It was crazy. Like I went in their house, I got to sit on their couch. It was crazy. They loved me. So that's how Paul sends up the whole argument of the resurrection. The resurrection. It's real, and make sure we live for it. Those are the two things he says. So let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Uh, You are very kind. And Lord, thank you that you have, um, man, when we haven't been faithful, you've abided faithful. Lord, thank you that you have, you're very, man, your Holy Spirit's very powerful and what you do in our lives through your spirit. And we just appreciate it. And we thank you for all the second chances we've ever gotten we thank you, Lord, that you haven't given up on us. Lord, we thank you that you take people like us to be involved in your kingdom. And I pray, Lord, as we go out of this place and we go to our homes or wherever it is we're headed, that we would be those that acknowledge you in all of our ways, those that look to you, that we would be a penitent people, a people that are humble before you, a people full of your love that shed abroad in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And may we represent Christ well. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you guys.